Welcome to the Rare Sense Podcast. This is Chris Irwin. Today I'm speaking with Auburn Neil Das. Neil is originally from India, where he earned his bachelor's and master's in physics. He then received a PhD in physics from the University of Texas at Austin, performing interdisciplinary research in computational neuroscience and vision science. He is now continuing as a postdoc while working at UT's new Psychedelics Research and Therapy Center, conducting tests and analysis on how psychedelic treatment might improve mental health. Much of his work has focused on understanding how the visual part of our brain works, how it makes sense of the images it sees, and how vision correlates to cognition. I was patient zero for his current experiments as part of a more extensive study, which is how we met. I found his work fascinating, specifically how measuring eye movement may help diagnose and track quantitative improvement for conditions like depression. During our conversation, we discussed his work EMDR, psychedelics in general, the sense of self, and other topics. Neil has his own podcast, The Room of Lives, which focuses on science, spirituality, the mind, and mystery, where this episode first appeared. Consequently, the initial 18 minutes were mainly him interviewing me. Anyway, I really enjoyed this discussion, and I hope you like it too. You can learn more about Neil at auburnneil.net, and I'll put a link to that in the description. Lastly, remember that Rare Sense content is not medical advice, nor does it represent the official position or opinions of any other organization or person. If you require diagnosis or treatment for a mental or physical issue or illness, please seek it from a licensed professional. Now, without further ado, here's Neil Das. Yeah. Well, let's just go then. Go yeah. ahead, ask your questions. We'll start. We'll start on your end. Yeah. So, I mean, one question that I usually ask my guests right in the beginning is just a kind of a sort of compact introduction to yourself, like right. a little bit about you know who you are, uh, you know what your childhood upbringing was like, what the kind of trajectory of your life was that you know brought you to where you are today and what you're doing. Yeah, so I'm a, I mean, the, I guess the compressed version of that is I was, I'm a Navy SEAL veteran. um, Mm -hmm. And so I did that for 20 years total, 14 on active duty, six in the reserves. And um, I don't know, my childhood is not anything of uh, value, I suppose, in terms of like what I'm doing now. It's, um, but I grew up in Massachusetts. went to the Naval Academy and then I was in the SEAL teams for 20 years, um, in, including my reserve time. Um, but, but the, the sort of part of my story that lends itself to what I do now is that I was somebody who's really suffered mentally specifically and from a mm. chronic illness perspective, as much as those two things are disparate potentially, which I don't think they are, but mm. just had a lot of issues, yeah. um, mentally and chronically physically Hmm. uh, post service and so despite any jobs i may have been doing as a civilian after my time in the military the the main thing i was kind of working on was that like how to sort that out how to figure it out um and so eventually i kind of turned that into this brand this rare sense idea which is sort of a comprehensive holistic mind fitness concept Hmm. because I just found that so much of what I had to do was up to me. It wasn't, 
a yeah. treatment that I was chasing. It wasn't some kind of, I, I just think a lot of the way we approach mental health concerns these days and chronic illness concerns as well. And when I say chronic illness, I mean sort of mysterious chronic illness. I don't mean things like diabetes or cancer potentially. I don't know if that's considered a chronic illness, but there's that term gets a little muddled mm -hmm. at times. Mm -hmm. I mean, things that people just scratch their heads and go, what is this? Like long COVID is the most recent example where people are like, what is going on with this? Um, why are people having symptoms or like, you know, chronic fatigue or whatever it may be for months, if not years after this, what, what is that? Hmm. Those but, types. But, but in your case, it wasn't long COVID. It was something else. That... No. And I'll be honest. I don't think part of the problem I'll be, uh, I think with that moniker chronic illness is we treat it like we treat acute illnesses hmm. in the sense that we want it to have a cause and a label that we can put on so we say it's this thing yeah yeah it's yeah. like covid okay like yeah. we, we know what that is we know it mm -hmm. comes from this virus it gives people these varying symptoms in certain degrees and levels and we know that your body can fend it off <laughs> maybe or may maybe not these vaccines might do something who knows but um, or, you know, something like a staph infection. It's like, okay, we get what that is. It's a bacteria. We can kill it with antibiotics. Um, but uh, when it comes to things like, like something like long COVID, mm -hmm. uh, we don't really know what's going on. And we try to do the same thing. We're like, well, let's give it a name, but mm -hmm. we don't even understand what it is. Yeah. So to me, it's a total... It's bullshit. It's like, well, you don't know what this thing is. Yeah, and yeah. you're just taking a group of symptoms yeah. and giving it a name, which yeah. doesn't help anybody. Yeah, yeah. Like they do it with um, uh, all sorts of things. Chronic fatigue syndrome is my favorite example because yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's you're going to the doctor potentially and you're saying, I'm tired all the time and I yeah. sleep enough and I don't... And they mm -hmm. go, they listen and they, it's like, oh, well, you have chronic fatigue syndrome. Yeah. You're like, yeah, I know. I just told you that. I'm tired <laughs> all the time. What, can, what, where does yeah. it come from? Well, we don't know. Well, yeah. how do you fix it? Well, we don't know. Yeah. Well, then what the fuck is the point of your diagnosis? Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like fibromyalgia is another one where yeah. people have pain all the time. It's like they're in pain in various ways. Yeah. And they gave it a name. Yeah. this fancy name, but yeah. it doesn't tell you anything about yeah. how to treat it or what it is. In your it's, case, whatever you had, does, did that have some kind of a diagnostic name? Well, well so uh, no, I mean, oh, I never okay. got a real diagnosis, but the point is uh, all those diagnoses are yeah. not relevant. They're, they're mm -hmm. useless. Yeah. And my point with it is, I think all those uh, illnesses, so to speak, yeah, are basically the same thing. They all come mm. from the same essential thing that's multifaceted. And it's yeah. it's like a nervous system that's kind of like on overload, right? Yeah, yeah. So they're not different. Yeah. I don't really think they're different. Yeah. They, they get it gets triggered in different ways. Yeah. Um, I, what you're reminding me of is, so when I was uh, getting my PhD here, there was this guy who was also a PhD student. And... To be honest, I think he was a little bit of a troubled guy. He would, um, he often got into these 
conflicts with like people in our cohort and uh you know he, he had like other kinds of stuff going on but he also complained of these kind of elusive illnesses with his body right uh where he had gone to doctor after doctor to chiropractor to this and whatever and none of them could pin down exactly what the issue was uh and right. and, and and the thing is I I didn't tell him this because I don't know how he would take it. But to me, it seemed like it had something to do with his psychology. Also, yes. I mean, you, you cannot really draw a sharp dividing line between the body and the mind. And 100%. I'm not going to say that. I mean, the reason I didn't want to tell him this, because a lot of the time people think that you're kind of ridiculing or dismissing what they're experiencing as, oh, it's just all in your head or imagination. That is not what I meant. It was like, you know, um, this is probably something that's happening at the interface of your body and mind to the point where if you're just not at peace and it can make itself manifest, manifest itself at any level between your body and your mind. Sometimes it can be just in the mind and sometimes it can be just in the body. Sometimes it can be somewhere in the interface. Right. If you try to go and look for it in any specific part of the body, you're not maybe going to find it. And then the treatment if you eventually get it, might be in a surprising place that you didn't think to look, you know? Yeah. So um, there's a yeah. There's a, a bunch of points there. So one is, again, mm. the, the flawed thinking, the flawed assumption behind all of that usually is yeah. they can't figure out the cause. That's yeah. always, it's like, what's the cause? There is no the cause. There's a lot of causes. It's mm. multiple things. And yeah. so we, it's you have to get out of this mindset of looking for this one thing that we're going to fix and then that's going to solve all your problems not the right. case right. multiple things the second thing is you can't you said you used a great word there interface hmm. and that's exactly right so what is the interface between your mind and your body hmm. i mentioned it earlier yeah yeah like what is it what what is the interface <laughs> no no no, no. there's a real question like yeah, yeah like, i know i know i know i'm trying to answer that i feel like it's more like a kind of term that i used if you really ask me to answer that question, no, no, no. I, yeah. I, I'm saying like, yeah, I said, I said, mm. the basic thing that's screwed up in these cases yeah. is your nerve, your nervous yeah. system, yeah. right? And to me, that is the interface, right? Your nervous mm -hmm. system is what connects your yeah. thoughts, right? Yeah. Like your your impulsions mm -hmm. to your body and creates physical output from that. So when yeah. that interface is screwed up, that's when we have this sort of multifaceted mind body all this stuff and you're exactly mm. right the whole point is so much of that goes back to what you're doing with your mind mm -hmm. to impact your nervous system yeah to then in turn impact the way your body feels mm -hmm. and that was the sort of big aha for me yeah. with my own stuff was i had to really work on the input i was giving my nervous system mm -hmm. how what do you mean by the input well, so the way you act is yeah. uh, the way you feel and the mm. way you act is just a repetitive pattern, right? Yeah. yeah. And that comes about from your behavior. So mm. the reason you feel like you mm -hmm. is because you do the same things over and over and over again, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that'll keep happening. And so if if the if a chronic pattern so to speak like a yeah. malignant let's call it a malignant pattern a maladaptive in chronic illness circuits circles they call it a maladaptive stress response hmm. 
if that becomes part of your pattern of behavior, well, now that's part of you. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And as long as you keep acting the same way, mm-hmm. it will still be you. Yeah. What you need to do is overwrite the circuitry by acting completely differently. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and that takes time as well. It yeah. doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. And the trick is you have to do it uh, even when you don't like you don't feel, like feel that yeah. way right yeah, yeah like yeah. you still feel terrible you have to yeah. act like you don't yeah yeah and that's the trick yeah 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 i agree that like i have yeah. i have to i multiple times a day will go into the mm-hmm. closet in my house mm-hmm. and talk to myself <laughs> yeah mm-hmm. not in a weird sort of but you know i don't know schizophrenic way yeah but essentially talk to my own mm-hmm. limbic system, my own nervous system to calm it down. And the yeah. whole point is like, you're just, you're telling it like chill mm-hmm. out because yeah. it's stuck on overdrive and it's yeah. not, it's not responding appropriately to stimuli. Yeah. yeah. So let me ask you a question that this is one of the questions that I was curious about when you said that you have undergone a lot of mental suffering, was mm-hmm. this because of the experiences that you had in the military or does it even predate predate that oh no it's mostly military experience yeah yeah and and so 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 the the issues that you were kind of dealing with on yourself that you're talking about now are mostly the issues that you kind of picked up during your time in the in the military Mm -hmm. yeah okay for sure yeah i mean Mm -hmm. it can be different for right that's yeah it can be different for all different people. Yeah. Um, that's my experience. A lot of people struggle with childhood experiences. Oh, yeah. That, be- that becomes the sort of baggage they carry around. Yeah. Um, and then a lot of people are both. Like there's yeah. a lot of, I-, I found this out later in life that many people that veterans yeah. who are suffering from some kind of mental anguish, yeah. be it PTSD or whatever, mm-hmm. whatever you want to label it as. Yeah is a combination of mm. their childhood experiences and oh, yeah. their time oh, in the yeah. military. Actually, it's kind of interesting. So the first person that I ever interviewed was kind of from like a similar background. Um, his name was Ian Benewis, and he was a Black Hawk helicopter pilot in Operation Just Cause in 1989. And... Um, I had a long interview with him and he said that most of his trauma actually doesn't stem from um, his military experience. It comes from his sort of childhood experiences. And one thing that he told me that he believes is that there is a kind of cycle of trauma that goes on in the military where he was like, oh, so so there will be a certain generation that has some kind of trauma either from their personal life or from the military. And then what happens is trauma oftentimes is handed down to the next generation in different yeah. kind of nonverbal ways, you know. <clears throat> I mean, children, they are born into a family and then they're like sponges. They absorb the energy nonverbally and also a little bit later verbally too, because they're being trained by the presence of the different kinds of minds that are teaching them what life is about. And in all kinds of verbal and nonverbal ways, they start to pick up on um, this kind of trauma. And then this trauma is something that then attracts them to the military in some kind of a cyclic yes. fashion. And then they go in, into the military, they pick up even more trauma, and then this cycle just continues. So he was like, there is some kind of a cycle going on here of personal and military trauma that 
hands itself down generation by generation. So that yeah. was, it was quite interesting for me to learn. The other thing that was very interesting was, so um, so during my grad school is when I took a bunch of psychedelics and I was like, this is a very interesting and I want to research this. And at that time, I did not realize at all. I had no inkling that researching psychedelics would have anything to do with starting to work with military people and veterans. I had no idea what even that connection was. Right. But then when I interviewed this guy, he said that um, it has to be veterans who have to teach the rest of society a lot about what trauma is and the use of these medicines because this is the part of the population that is really much more exposed to traumatic events and incidents and the brunt of it than the rest of the population. In fact, a lot of the time we come back from, uh, from, from our service and we are not able to relate to the ongoing day-to-day -day experiences of other people because of how kind of extraordinarily different our traumatic experiences were. So, so when I was um, talking to him about this, he was like, yeah, I mean, you can expect to work with a lot of veterans if you're going into going into this field. And, you know, over time, I've had more and more conversations with veterans and kind of starting to come together in my mind about, you know, why, what the what the whole connection is. Right. So, you know, so it's kind of interesting. Well, yeah. let's so let's flip it here for a second. Since yeah. I did the whole intro on me, you need to do it on yeah. you because mm -hmm. everyone on my end, people know who I am. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so a little bit of an intro about me. So, my full name is Abhranil. It means blue sky, but I usually go by Neil because that's just easier to pronounce. I was born in India of uh, middle class parents. I have an older sister. I was born in the in the city of Calcutta. My dad's a retired geologist. My mom was a cartographer. Uh, she passed away a few uh, years ago. And uh, so when I was growing up, I wanted to be a scientist. I first wanted to be an astronaut. Then I realized it's quite difficult to become an astronaut, even if you really <laughs> want it. Uh, yeah. uh, and then I was like, okay, I want to be a space scientist. And then I wanted to be a physicist. So I got my bachelor's and master's in physics in India. And then I came to UT Austin, the University of Texas at Austin, for my PhD in physics, which I got last year in May. Um, but during my uh, grad school in physics, what happened was my my academic trajectory kind of shifted uh, because instead of doing like real physics, I started doing computational neuroscience, which is kind of using the tools of math and physics and programming and things like that to understand different aspects of the working of the of the human uh, brain and that kind of happened. There were a couple of coincidental aspects to it, but one of the not coincidental aspects to why I went in that direction was because I, I had always been interested in the working of the mind. And I'm very glad that I kind of took that trajectory because physics is a pretty old uh, science. A lot of people have been working on it for a long time. So in order to make any new progress in physics, you first have, there's just no low hanging fruit in physics anymore. You have to train for years and years to get to the frontier of what is known in order to then make like a tiny little contribution to make something new known. Whereas in neuroscience, there's a lot of low hanging fruit still 
is because we just, until this point in time, we haven't had the tools to be able to quickly do computations and things like that to answer those questions. So I feel like there's a lot of interesting questions um, within easy reach still in neuroscience. And so I'm like, I feel very fulfilled uh, working in this field. So I went into computational neuroscience and then it kind of became like visual neuroscience. That's what I've been doing. That's what most of my PhD thesis was about. Basically trying to understand different open questions about how the visual part of our brain works. We know pretty well how the how the eyes work, like how is the external world projected as an image into the neurons. That part is pretty well understood. Um, so you can think of it as uh, imagine that there's some kind of an autonomous robot which has a camera through which it sees the world. And then it takes that image and then it parses that image to make meaning out of it. Like, okay, here's an object. This is a face. I know this face. That's a ball coming at me at about this speed. I must reach my hand out at this velocity in this angle to catch it. <laughs> so um, we know quite a bit about how the image gets into that robot, but we don't know how it makes sense of that image. <laughs> so that's what I'm working on is um, different bits of the question of how does the brain make sense of the image data that comes in? Mm. And uh, so that's that's my day job. And then, uh, like I said, during grad school, it took a bunch of psychedelics. And I was like, well, this is one of the most interesting experiences ever. And I kind of try to follow my nose as far as interest is concerned uh, in my life. And I just notice that my life becomes better. It doesn't feel like I'm really working if if what I'm working on is something that I'm like genuinely interested in. Yeah. So at some point during my grad school, I was like, I think this is what I want to do in the future. Um, I've already made kind of a leap from physics to neuroscience. This is going to be a smaller leap to study psychedelics. So I wanted to kind of get involved with researching psychedelics and not just taking them. Um, so when <laughs> I, yeah. So when I learned that UT is going to have a new center for psychedelic research and therapy, I reached out to them and uh, they're in a little bit of a funding crunch. So I was like, okay, I'm going to offer to do free research for them. So that's how this whole thing kind of started. So Greg Fonzo is the is the professor who is kind of the head of UT's research, uh, psychedelics research and therapy center. And uh, in the beginning, I was expecting to just do some number crunching for them. So they're going to be collecting all the data and I'm just going to help with the analysis. That's what my proposal was. And he said, well, you're coming from a vision science background. Um, why don't you design some of your own experiments in addition to what we have? And you analyze that data. So it's going to be a little part of our project that you just you know, you take command of that whole part on your own. And I was like, that's really interesting. I have, uh, that's a lot of independence, like independent experiment design that I've never done before but it's it's challenging, but it's like a creative challenge. So I was like, yeah, I'm down for it. So I like taught myself a lot of what eye tracking and things like that can tell us about cognition. And uh, I kind of like set up the experiment sort of on the nick of time. You were my first subject. And right. even the right. this is how we met. Yeah. yeah, even the day before I was kind of scrambling to put together parts of that experiment. 
so I still don't know what the quality of the data is going to be, but I sure as hell have already learned a lot. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Well, so let's talk about that. This is how you and I met was Mm -hmm. part of this kind of research study. Um, And yeah, I was just fascinated by what you were doing with the, yeah. So can you talk about your that experiment? I'm, I'm assuming you can sort of divulge the details, but yeah, the, sort yeah. of the eye tracking and you were telling me about how that potentially can correlate to things like depression. I think it was depression specifically, yeah. right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So the first thing that I should say is that this is a pretty young science and it's still kind of developing. For example, these kinds of high fidelity eye tracking systems didn't even used to exist. Uh, more than a couple of decades ago. Mm-hmm. So um, and it's um, so I come from a quantitative background. In the beginning, I was in physics where you a lot of the times you don't even do experiments. You just sit down with pen and paper and you work out a physics problem exactly with math. And there's no there's no um, corrupting noise or anything in the data. It's all exact. So my career has been step-by-step moving away from that exact theory in the idealistic world to working with real data. And real data data is pretty messy. So um, in order to draw any any kind of concrete conclusions from data that's coming from human participants, a lot of the time it's kind of dicey. So when um, Greg said, okay, you can design your own kind of vision science experiment, I started thinking, okay, let me read up on what vision would possibly have to do with cognition. So I started reading, doing a lot of literature review, and I and I kind of honed in on a few experiments that have been done in the past using just visual experiments that have been correlated with, you know, what you could call a couple of dimensions of psychological well-being. So this was also kind of interesting for me to learn. And I'll give like a brief overview. There were three different experiments that I ran on you. Uh, the first one is called an anti-saccad or pro-saccad anti-saccad task. So when we humans look around in 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 our in the visual field, when we look around, we do this little things called saccades. So our eye lands on some specific spot where we are looking, and then it doesn't go smoothly from that point to the next point kind of jumps to the next point and then it takes another snapshot and then it jumps to the next point. So whenever we stop, that's called a fixation. And then the jump is called a saccade. So that's how humans collect information uh, about our surroundings. And our resolution is always the highest right in the middle of our vision. So basically we're moving this high resolution point around to collect data across the scene. And we do it by little jumps. So we just jump from point to point. And so the pro-saccade, anti-saccade task is something where you just kind of focus in the middle of the screen and then something comes up on the side and you are asked, depending on the color of the thing that comes up, you are either expected to go and look at that thing or go in the opposite direction. Now, going and looking at the thing that has popped up is the most naturally hardwired thing for us to do. Uh, whereas mo- moving our eyes in the opposite direction is kind of counterintuitive. Uh, we are biologically wired to look in the direction of whatever has uh, popped up. Right. So what has been shown in the literature in the previous experiments is that people with major depressive disorder 
are slower at both of these tasks compared to the average healthy human. So whether you're looking at the thing that has popped up or looking in the opposite direction, you're going to be slower. But looking in the opposite direction, you're especially slower. And it has been kind of experienced. So you're kind of slow at everything when you're depressed. So that is just a general explanation for why you're slow at both of these tasks. But mm -hmm. why you're especially slow at looking in the opposite direction has kind of been explained as a failure of our internal regulation mechanisms. So we are not just our lizard brains. So there is a certain kind of um, default reaction that might come up within us when something happens in the external world. And a lot of the time that default reaction might not be the wisest thing for us to do. So mm -hmm. we have more recently developed parts of our mind that you know a lot of animals don't have, which suppress the default reaction and say, mm -mm -mm, we're not gonna do that. We're gonna do this right. opposite thing. So that's something that's actually very healthy for us. And if we have strong self-regulation mechanisms, that usually is a sign of kind of like a healthy psychology that you're not completely at the will of whatever natural impulses come up every every second. So the anti-saccade task is a test of is a test of that that how quickly and efficiently are you able to regulate yourself and suppress yourself from doing the natural you know the automatic ah, impulse. Yes. Okay. Got it. Yep. Yep. So it has been shown that people with depression especially suck at this kind of self-regulation, um, and they will uh, they will they are much more likely to go and uh, erroneously look in the direction of the thing that has popped up, even though they have been told to look in the opposite direction, or they keep themselves fixated on the middle point for longer, and they're like, okay, okay, no, 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 let's not go in that direction. We have to go in the other direction, and they take longer to make their saccade in the opposite direction. And there have been correlations shown between people who are worse at this task. And they, these people also tend to have greater suicidal ideation. And mm -hmm. I, I've had a couple of conversations with people who have suicidal ideation. And these are kind of, they take the form often of intrusive thoughts. You know, so they're kind of going about their day or, you know, they're, they're depressed. And then the suicidal thoughts start kind of pressing in on them. And it's like they don't have too much control over regulating this suicidal ideation. So it kind of stands to reason that a simple experiment like this visual experiment, where they're failing to regulate their natural impulses, these people would also be the ones that are kind of more susceptible to this kind of more negative impulses that, that the mind comes up with. Um, right. So uh, that was the first experiment. Sorry, you're about to No, I just want to, yeah, yeah, so a couple of things on that experiment, which I was asking you when we were in Texas together. Yeah. The first is, okay, so what, right? Like, what do you yeah. do with that information? Because yeah. it's sort of like what I was saying before, where if you were like, hey, we did this test on you and it yeah. indicates that you're depressed and the guy would be like, well, yeah, I know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What, do you, what do you do? What do you do with the info? Yeah. So in this particular case, we are doing like a pre and post. So there's a bunch of people who are kind of going through a psychedelic treatment, and um, the idea is that we want to have several clinical assessments of the quality of their mental well-being, and we're trying to mm -hmm. kind of spread this out as much as possible because we don't know. I mean, when people come, they don't have a single well-defined mental issue. 
they have a whole bunch of different things. So we have right, like a right. broad spectrum of different kinds of clinical assessments that we do before their psychedelic retreat. And then after their psychedelic retreat, we do those same assessments again to see if they're Im improved on those measures. So um, the idea is to use these tests as a way of evidence to say that, oh, hey, these psychedelic okay. treatments are working. So, so it's kind of a quantitative way to yeah. assess something that is normally just a qualitative or a subjective. Yeah, measure, exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. The, the more yeah. quantitatively you can say stuff, the more it's convincing of and the more it kind of helps. Um, you know, we kind of have to work with the government a little bit in order to keep paving the path for legalization and scientific experiments and things like that using psychedelics. So we have to show in the data, hey, this kind of works. You know, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, and it can't be in a hand wavy way. The more quantitative it is, the more convincing it is. Yeah. So, so the vision experiments that I'm doing are part of this kind of set of um, a set of clinical assessments. Where in the past, what has happened is these vision experiments have been done on people with different kinds of mental issues versus healthy populations, and a statistically significant difference has been shown. In the in the measurements between the people with the issues and the and the healthy controls. So what I'm hoping is that before the psychedelic treatment, I'm going to get a certain kind of measure, and after the psychedelic treatment, when we measure those same people on the same vision experiments, there's going to be a a, a statistically significant improvement mm -hmm. that we can show, and it will be really good if we can show it not just right after the treatment, but one month later six months later, one year later. And 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 our experimental design includes this kind of long-term. So we want to see to what extent do the benefits last beyond right. just the one uh, psychedelic session. So that's the kind of idea. If we can show that there's this quantitative improvement that lasts into the future, yeah. and that's, uh, that's a very good sign. But once again, I will say that we as scientists have to be careful that we don't want to make it our agenda that we have to show this. If the effect does not exist and we show that, hey, there was no statistically significant difference, it's important for us to publish that as well. You know, we yes, just, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So well, I also think yeah. it's it is like ultimately uh, you hear a lot about sort of quantitative stuff when it comes to yeah. mental health and mental wellness. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's it's a subjective thing. It's like, yeah. how do you feel? I, and yeah. someone could say, I feel great. How do you measure that? I don't know, yeah. right? And so yeah. I think you bring up a really good point about having some kind of data set that helps yeah. you say, hey, we can do this in terms of getting things moving, whether it's through you know Congress or whatever it may be, right? In terms of yeah. approvals, and legalization of things. I think that's really important. And that's a, that's yeah. a great thing to have. Yeah. However, still at the end of the day, it comes down to, is this person doing better? Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do they self-assess as, hey, I'm good to go now, or I'm better, yeah, yeah, or yeah. I don't have those yeah. thoughts, and that's and, really and there are ways to do that also. I mean, you probably filled out some neuropsychological assessments. Oh yeah, yeah. So, yes, I did. <laughs> yeah, so those are ways of basically getting what you are subjectively feeling, um, as in the form of an answer to like some long uh, set of mm -hmm. questions. But at the end of the day, we have to, in order for us to be kind of effective in conveying um, conveying the, the the effect kind of succinctly, we have to compress it down to some numbers. That's just what yes. 
quickly. Yeah. So we yeah. have this questionnaire and there's some way of translating the answers to your the subjective questions into some kind of an overall number of how good is this person feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's true that you cannot really boil down the overall subjective experience of a human to a number. But in some cases, you kind of, that's the best that you can do in order to convey some message saying, hey, their um, self-assessment score on this depression scale went from this to this. So that's yep. kind of an evidence that, okay, you got better. Now yep. you can go in and ask the person subjectively how you're feeling, but that number still carries a uh, a strong message that okay, there's something here. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I would say it's still subjective, though. Right? Yeah, it's still. Yeah, I it's mean, still anecdotal, which is the always the, like the yeah. curse of death term. With yeah. it, it's like that's anecdotal. It's like, well, yeah. If, when you're talking about somebody's mental health, it's anecdotal. It's like, how are they feeling it? Yeah. So the neuropsych assessments, uh, even though it is expressed in the form of a number, they are subjective. However, yes. for example, the vision science experiments that I'm doing. Those are not subjective. It's right, not like right. I feel like right, I can correct. regulate myself 70% of the time. Oh, I can see how much you can do. Yeah. That. Yeah. And it's and and these vision experiments are so like they're happening in the scale of, I don't know, milliseconds. Something pops up on the screen, and either within milliseconds you can make the right movement or you take longer and then there's no two ways about it so right so so the cool thing about some of these experiments is that it can probe at a level what the quality of your um you know uh, what the quality of your psychological makeup is that is at a scale much quicker than you know the the subjective skill where you like sit down and think about and blah blah yes, and right, potentially right. you can fool yourself into thinking yes. that you feel better or worse this is a much more it's like i'm measuring the hardware you know <laughs> yeah so, so so it's kind of cool yeah and the other so the other questions i had about this were yeah. um is there a way to sort of reverse engineer it right and we talked mm. about emdr and one of the things that people don't know emdr is yeah uh, you sort of hold these paddles they're vibrating, you get these tones in your ears, and then sometimes it's lights as well that go back and yeah. forth, you track with your eyes, that you then yeah. work with a therapist who is taking you through a traumatic memory and sort of retelling the story, so to speak. Yeah. And so the question I had, one, what you're doing reminded me of that. And EMDR yeah. was very effective for me, even though I yeah. didn't do it in a, I didn't do the visual part, I just had okay. my eyes closed, but it was still extremely effective. And the question that I had for you was, okay, is there a, are your neurons basically wired together in the sense that sort of the depressive mood, so to speak, mm. is tied to various physical patterns, right? Like it's mm -hmm. tied to sort of the eye thing or whatever. Yeah. And so if you improve, if you could work on your, whatever it is, anti-saccade yeah. movement, yeah. Yeah. would that in turn fix your depression to some extent? Right. Yeah. Like because of those things being tied together. And is that potentially how EMDR works too? Yeah. And I don't know even know if you know the answer to those questions, but yeah, I mean, so in all honesty, we had this conversation over lunch while you were yeah, we did. like we're you were entirely sleep deprived. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's so true. Yeah, I was. Yeah. I was actually yeah. a little bit scared to do my experiments on you that day. I remember because yeah. some of the other experimenters said. Yeah, he's a, he's a little bit grumpy, and <laughs> and that was my first experiment on 
uh, on a subject and I was like, mm, yeah, I don't, I, I, I'm feeling a little bit nervous. Uh, so, uh, so I actually, when you said that you needed to go and uh, take that lunch break, I'm like, okay, yeah. this is my opportunity to actually like get to meet him a little bit. So I yeah. just decided in that moment that I'm also going to come down and get lunch with you yeah. uh, just so that we have a little moment to just, you know, talk like humans and just like get to know each other a little bit before yeah. I go and like, you know, do my beep boop experiments on you. <laughs> so, so I remember having this conversation and in all honesty, this is a very new field that I'm entering. So yeah. my previous background is kind of on theoretical and computational neuroscience without much implication for much clinical implication. And this is the first time I'm kind of getting into this field and I'm getting into this field because I am interested in clinical implication and therapy, but I'm kind of doing this on my own and I'm like learning a lot of things that are new. And I honestly don't know too much about EMDR other than a couple of anecdotes that I've mm -hmm. heard yeah. uh, like yours and, and other persons, but I have heard of this idea before. So, so to answer your questions, um, right away, I don't know of any way off the top of my head that my vision science assessment experiments could somehow be reverse engineered as some kind of a clinical uh, clinical procedure to make things better. So I, I, I don't know off the top of my head how that can work. In order to understand how it can work that way, I first have to learn how does something like EMDR work? Right. Like, you know, and I have very limited understanding of that. I, 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 I don't really know very well, but I have heard multiple times and these are kind of maybe disconnected, but there's some kind of a common uh, theme is that a certain psychological state is often connected to a certain pattern of behavior. Yeah. And and and, you know, I've heard that you can kind of reverse engineer it by acting in a way that you're like, you know, if you're feeling depressed, but you're kind of act in some ways as if you're not, you can kind of reverse engineer your body and mind to right. fool itself into thinking, well, I'm actually feeling better, you know? Right. Um, so that's, okay, so that was, that was one idea. And the other thing is that, so for example, in some kinds of trauma therapy, what I've heard is that um, if you underwent some kind of a traumatic situation, where suddenly something very scary happened. And then what happens is our lizard brain takes charge. And our lizard brain has like this, you know, it's fight or flight or freeze, you know? And whatever happened during your actual ex experience um, may have been that you froze in that situation. And yeah. when you freeze, you're kind of powerless. You're not really making any moves to get out of the situation. You're not fighting the whatever, and you're just freezing and try to make yourself as small as possible. And there was some kind of an incident that left a very deep traumatic imprint on you and you have still have to kind of carry it around. And anytime that a similar experience happens again, um, you kind of go into that freeze mode. And what I've heard is that in um, trauma therapy with some of these people, sometimes what they do is the, the, the therapist will create a circumstance which kind of mimics the original incident that happened that makes them want to freeze, except this time, um, they will not do it quite to that extent that it's so intense that you completely freeze again and you're not able to do anything about it. 
but simulated enough so that it kind of reminds you of that. But in that situation, you are asked to actually not freeze, but to run or do something with your body, something that you did not do in that first place. Right. You know? Yep. So you do that and somehow that rewires something in your brain, something about the story or something about your reaction to the point where it helps you kind of release yourself a little bit from that trauma. I don't know what exactly it does, but it's kind of like you stop identifying yourself as the entity that completely froze. You know, so your yeah. relationship with that trauma changes because now in this simulated traumatic incident, you were actually able to do something about it. Yeah. Um, and so somehow your relationship with that trauma changes a little bit. Now, the thing is, uh, what you're like, it's kind of similar to what you're talking about, because it's like in that same situation of trauma, now you're kind of retraining yourself to do something else that you did not do before that is full of a little bit more agency and autonomy. Yeah. You know, right. and that could kind of rewire the patterns of you know, maybe subconscious patterns of who you believe yourself to be in relation to that trauma. You know, do yep. you believe yourself to be like just a frozen rabbit or 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 someone that can take some charge, whatever, you know? So I feel like these are very like deep and complex questions. And in some of the cases, we know a little bit about what kind of treatment works, like EMDR or this kind of trauma therapy, but we don't know why it works. So right. we have figured out some of these ways like, oh, we can reverse engineer this, but we don't have a full understanding of why it works. So, you know, I would be interested. I'm kind of like a theoretical minded person. So I am always curious about learning a little bit about why does that work and how yeah. is, how is, and I feel like we just, uh, it, yeah, it, this day and age, we still know too little about the human brain that sometimes we just know kind of, phenomenologically that you can kind of reverse engineer some of these things in this way, but we don't have a solid, rich theory that tells us why it, why it works. Yeah, yeah. And if we have a greater understanding of why such reverse engineering works, we will probably be able to design a lot more of this kind of protocols that will be able to, you know, um, sort of uh, release you from some of these trauma-based patterns that people right. have locked yeah. in. Yeah, I mean, I, I to me again, that's so much of it is that is the pattern and the the association that your mind has or your brain has with a certain circumstance and a feeling that's associated with that. Yeah. And so you have to break that pattern. You have to overwrite it. It'd be like the the clearest example I can provide is a lot of us have certain songs like music yeah. that when we hear it triggers a memory, right? Yeah. Yeah. We, we even say that we say, oh, every time I hear this song, it makes it makes me think of X, Y, Z. Yeah. And that's exactly right. The yeah. neurons in your brain, for whatever reason, the first time you heard that song or there was some specific incident that happened with that song, that those neurons, the memory yeah. neurons and that song are so associated with one another now. Yeah. So if you hear that music, yeah, it literally those neurons are wired with other ones that are yeah. that include that memory. Right. And yeah. so you, you remember that. So the only way to change that, like, let's say yeah. that memory is not a good one, would yeah. be to consciously listen to that music and associate it with something different to the yeah. point where it started, it broke that connection. Yeah. Apart, right? yeah, yeah. And so I think a lot of these things we're talking about basically yeah. do the same thing. And that's why I say it's, 
your behavior to overwrite certain things is so important. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, by the way, I'm sorry. I'm, tell your coworkers because I'm sorry if I was grumpy that morning. I was, uh, <laughs> no. I was, I was definitely sleep deprived. It was like uh, I thought I was just. I was very tired and very like trying to. And it's it's like a twelve hour day of. Doing oh yeah, totally. Tests. I don't it just yeah. exhausting. And some of them, yours was kind of cool. Some of them are are really fun, but some are, mm. are really boring. And it's like yeah. you just. So, but I apologize yeah. if I was. Uh, no, no, that's all right. When I learned I was... how sleep deprived you were, I was like, oh yeah, I get it. <laughs> I, get it. <laughs> I, I would be grumpy too. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, so yeah. so talk about your other the the other experiments we did, right? And like yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The other things so, we're doing there. So before I go into the other experiments, I was a little bit curious. You don't have to answer this, but I personally mm. am very interested in EMDR. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know to. I mean, if you are comfortable with sharing a little bit more about, you said EMDR was extremely effective for you. It was. So if, you, if you could share a little bit more about, you know, I don't know how much you're comfortable with talking about what the nature of the trauma was, like without going into details and in what way, subjectively at least. You told me a little bit about it when we were talking over lunch is that it's not like anything about the traumatic situation changed, but you had after the emdr you had a different relationship to it right where you were no longer you were no longer kind of uh sort of imprisoned by the same narrative yes surrounding correct. that trauma you could now have a new narrative that relates you in a new way to that trauma and say that was me that is what i believed about myself regarding that trauma and this is what I believe now. Yeah. You know? So if Correct. you could tell me a little bit more about that, I'm like personally very curious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so again, I don't, mm. I, I need to look it up actually, because I talk about EMDR enough where I don't know how it works. And to your point, maybe we don't know how it works exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the basic, I think, you know, the basic concept, just for anybody who is not familiar with this. And here's the other thing I would need to look up what EMDR stands for, but whatever yeah. it stands for. Mm -hmm. um it's this practice where you you hold these kind of paddles in your hands mm -hmm. that vibrate back and forth kind of on a like a metronome sort of bzz, bzz, bzz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and then that corresponds to you wear headphones that corresponds to tones that are going back and forth in your ears and then sometimes they've got this sort of array of lights in front of you as well where you tra your eyes track the exact same thing back and forth I didn't, the guy I did it with doesn't do the eye part. I think he found that it didn't really matter, mm -hmm. but you use it with a traumatic memory. Mm. Um, in my case, it was sort of a personal failure, basically, that I had really stewed mm. on a professional failure that mm. really ate me up. And yeah. um, I just, like, I just felt sort of shame and regret and guilt mm -hmm. and it just, I just would think about it all the time over and over and over. Yeah, like, yeah, this, yeah. Is, this was my PTSD. Yeah. Um, which I think, you know, we, we sort of PTSD to me, it, there's a, a lot of mm. factors to it, mm. but to me, the core element of it is a memory that really bothers us. Right. Yeah. That's re that's what it is. Yeah. Um, and so you have to ask yourself, why does this memory bother me so much? It's a memory yeah. just like yeah. any other memory you might have. Um, Anyway, so with that treatment, the therapist sort of says, okay, well, what are you, 
what are you telling yourself about this memory, right? Yeah. Like what's this? And you said the word narrative. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. What's the narrative you've built around this? Mm-hmm. And then you sort of go with that. And then you just sort of see where your mind goes. And, and he'll check in with you and say, where are you now? Where are you now? And it's, it's, it's a meditative practice in a lot of ways. You're paying attention to this, this where your mind tracks yeah. with this memory as sort of the starting point. And then he'll take you back to it and he'll say, all right, or she mm. will say, what do you, what do you want to tell yourself about this? Yeah. What is the story you would prefer to tell? Which sounds weird. Yeah. But it's like, okay, well, let me tell a different story. Mm-hmm. And so you do that and then you yeah. see where it goes. And for whatever reason, it, it does exactly, I think what I'm talking about. It sort of breaks apart mm. the story from the memory. Yeah builds a new one on top of it. Mm-hmm. And so, and it, and that's what it did for me. I did it twice and mm. it totally got rid of this sort of shame, regret. Like I just stopped telling the story. Oh, was, that's and, Okay. And it's so, like, and it's like the memory's still there. I, I still remember it, but it yeah. just doesn't bother me anymore. And what it made me realize was mm. you don't even need I don't even think you need EMDR. What you need is a recognition of the problem is not the memory. It mm-hmm. is the story you have built around it. Yeah. So yeah. just change the story. Now that's yeah. that's easier said than done. Yeah. But that's ultimately the problem is the narrative. That's yeah, what yeah. it is. Yeah. yeah. So at the time that you were kind of telling this new narrative, you were holding onto these paddles and they're going like bzz, bzz, bzz. And yep. then you have this headphone. So what's going on with the headphones? It's or just, there's a tone in it that goes back. It just cor- corresponds. So it's are like you the, asked the to do something back. like uh, move your eyes from side to side or something like that? So, yeah. So um, the full version is exactly that, right? So the, mm. the tones are going back and forth. The yeah. paddles are vibrating back and forth. And, the, and so that, that'll correspond. And then your eyes are going. So it's almost like your eyes, mm. ears, and three of your senses. Yeah are being stimulated in the exact same way, back yeah. and left to right, back and forth, yeah. right? Yeah. For me, I didn't do the eye part. So it was just, I had my eyes closed. So mm-hmm. just ears and um, tactile sensation. Right, right. But with your eyes closed, you were not moving your eyeballs from side to side. You were not. No. Okay. So, I mean, just just off the top of my head, here's what I'm thinking might be the relevance for these other kind of, you know, the sensory things is that um, I feel like what happens a lot of the time is that when there's a kind of traumatic incident and a narrative builds around it, we kind of get locked into a certain groove or pattern of repeatedly going through that same narrative again and again until it really crystallizes. And then what happens is that we have no other choice or alternative when we think about that memory or the narrative, we we are kind of choiceless. We go through that same groove again and again. We have no other way of visualizing it, contextualizing it, or having a different perspective on it. Right. Right. And 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 the thing is, it's it's you know you can think of it as something that's happening just in the realm of imagination, but even when we imagine things, we're kind of internally visualizing stuff. And so the thing is. When you're at the same time that you're being asked to restructure that um, that narrative, you're physically moving your internal sensations. Like you know, you're, there's like this. You, your brain has this like sensory part to it, 
and it's kind of jolting you back and forth. So yeah. in some way, that jolting back and forth could unlock you at a kind of like a neural level from being locked onto some fixed pattern. Like yep. there is the narrative level where you are restructuring because you're telling a different story. And at a very basic hardware level, you have this jolting back and forth, which might work together somehow in the brain to even loosen or fracture that, that pattern more quickly. Yep. And I feel like in psychedelic therapy, this is something that also happens similarly where it has been shown that when you take psychedelics, one of the things that they do is that they um, temporarily create what is called plasticity in the brain, which is the ability to make new neural connections. Um, so if there's some kind of a story that you've been kind of locked in, what happens is that when you remember anything about that story, there's a very well-worn path of neural firings and associations that goes on and just go into that same cycle again and again. And every time you go through that cycle, you're strengthening the connections that take yep. you through that cycle. That's right. So the next time you become even more choiceless, that anything that's linked to that cycle will take you well predictably to that cycle and you do it once again and it strengthens again. So right. what the psychedelics do is that for a temporary period of time, they kind of loosen these associations and they make it easier for you to be forming new neural connections. Right. So if you're kind of wise about it, and you take the psychedelics along with an intention that during the time that you have that plasticity window, as they call it, you're going to use it to restructure your mind and have a new perspective or something like that. Then you're creating new neural connections, which the next time you go into that cycle, you're a little less. It's going to be a little less probable that you'll go through that same cycle again because you've created some new pathways. Right. So in the same way that the psychedelics are doing it. It could be that this kind of uh, jolting using the sensory mechanisms in EMDR is kind of doing the same thing at the same time that you're kind of coaxing yourself to create new pathways. So yeah. It would be like yeah. a non-psychedelic way of do doing the same thing. Yeah, I wonder um, if, uh, you know, you sort of mentioned the lizard brain and, and right, we, our brains are sort of like three brains built on top of one another, right? Yeah. It's not sort of like a, it's, and so you've got the sort of lizard, monkey brain, whatever it is, lizard brain, monkey brain, and then sort of yeah. this prefrontal cortex it's or whatever it is on top of that mm -hmm. and i wonder too if something like that where you've got this sort of the sensory stuff going on which is very much a sort of lizard brain type thing yeah while you're trying to rationalize on top of that 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 the yeah. sensory things are like you're talking about it's kind of breaking up that yeah mm -hmm. um that association right it's yeah. sort of it's almost like distracting yeah the lizard brain part yeah. from the rational part of your yeah. brain yeah. and allowing as you re-rationalize it's like yeah. rewiring that somehow right I, you know again yeah. i don't know i'm not a neuroscientist but yeah um so all right well so go get into your the other experiments too, the other experiments yeah. yeah the second experiment i can only describe the experiment but i don't have much to say about it i only know that it has been shown to be effective in the past to separate, once again, uh, depressed population from healthy control to, I would say, a great degree of accuracy. So um, the second experiment is called a smooth pursuit eye movement. And in it, what happens is there's a, there's a dot that traces some kind of a smooth uh, trajectory on the screen. It moves around the screen, and you're instructed to just keep your eye on the dot. And it has been shown that people with uh, major depressive disorder 
when they are following this dot around, they have some characteristics of their eye movement that can be measured and shown to be different from the eye movement characteristics of uh, healthy people. Once again, the the theoretical foundation for why this is the case is not very well developed, but people have kind of shown that this is something that can be used with some some measure of reliability to separate out people with depression from um, right. uh, from healthy people. Now, one thing that I should say is that it's a little bit tricky for me to be designing these experiments and hoping to get anything meaningful out of them because the people who come into these um, studies, they don't have, like I said, they don't have a single diagnosis like you have you have depression. They have a lot of different things. They could have trauma, they could have social anxiety, they could have depression, they could have other kinds of things. Um, so the literature that I have studied uh, proposes and has evaluated some of these experiments only in the context of one diagnosis. You know, mm. So they have a little bit of a cleaner population to work with who have this specific thing and not the other. So that's one of the things that I'm a little bit concerned about is that when I do the same experiments on a group of people, each of whom have like different kinds of stuff, then the data that comes out of that might be a little bit murky, you know, but it's like the best that I can do at the moment. So I don't really know. So that's the smooth pursuit eye movement. And um, it has been shown that um, you can take certain measures of that smooth pursuit eye movement. So I told you how when we look at a scene, um, humans do these things called fixations and saccades. We fixate on points and then we jump from that to the next point. And yeah. we do similar things when we are tracing a moving target. Um, even though the target is moving smoothly, we do not have hardware in our um, eye muscles to move smoothly. We Even if we want, our eyes cannot move smoothly. It does these little jumps. Oh. And the jumps can become like really tiny little jumps to the point where it kind of looks like smooth movement, but it's not really smooth movement. It's this kind of jumps from one point to the other. So these are called catch-up saccades. So you fixate on the point and then the point moves away from wherever you're looking and then you catch up to that point, you know? So what you're doing is these are like predictive saccades. You, you notice that the point is moving with a certain velocity. So your eye lands at that point and the point moves away and the brain does a little calculation for, okay, this thing is moving at about this velocity. So if I am to land on this point again, I should move my eye about this much Got it. and, and land on that point again. So there are a lot of little calculations that are happening in order to stay on that target. And it has been seen that those calculations and the results of those calculations are different for people with depression versus, you know, healthy controls. So there are some measures that you can do. It's like, okay, what is the what is the what is the amount by which you jump from point to point? Is it a lot of little saccades or is it a few large saccades? What is the speed of your saccades? You know, things like that. So that's yeah. a that's a smooth pursuit eye movement uh, task that I did. Um, we should this, we should explain to people too the way this yeah. was set up. So my oh, face yeah. <laughs> sort of locked into this um, a chin rest. Yeah, this yeah. this sort of yeah right. So my chin is in there, and yeah. so my face doesn't move. And yeah. then it you did some sort of um, you know calibration with the with yeah. the computer right. And so then the computer yeah. is sort of tracking where my only my eyes are allowed to move. And so yeah, exactly. So so you're sitting at a desk with your head kind of resting on this chin rest so that your head is not moving too much, that would make the tracking harder. 
And then there's a screen on the other side of the desk that shows you these images. And yep. right underneath that screen is an infrared emitter and camera. So we are using something called the iLink 1000, which is designed by this Canadian company that, you know, every every vision scientist who does eye tracking swears by it. It's very expensive. It's $20,000. I, I was able to loan it from some other professor uh, in the department who has not been using it, but I would, left to myself, I would have no way of designing an <laughs> eye tracking experiment and getting someone to buy a $20,000 worth of equipment. Right, so, right. So it's got this um it's got this um infrared emitter. It's basically shines a beam of infrared light off your eyes, and then there's a lens that takes a picture of, you know, so it makes like an infrared image of your face, and within that is the eye. And this eye tracking equipment comes with its own computer, which is designed from scratch by this uh, eye tracking hardware company so that it only has the minimal amount of hardware and software needed to run the eye tracking stuff in real time and nothing else because you need very fast computation in order to, I mean, it actually samples the way that your eye is moving up to a rate of 2000 times a second. So if there was, if it was a, like a regular computer running this as software on top of that, it would not be able to do it at that okay. speed. So, yeah. so it takes a picture of your eye and it has got some, real-time software there to detect where your pupil is. So it takes a picture of your eye and they kind of detects where your pupil is. And the other thing that it detects is the, the infrared lamp that kind of shines on your eyes. You're not able to really see it because it's infrared. But after it bounces off your eye and reaches the camera, there is a particular point of your eye where it makes, um, it's called a corneal reflection. So it gets the picture of your eye, but then it also gets this very bright spot, which is like the 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 whole uh, thing just kind of bounced off, bounced off your eye, and then it just hits the camera where the brightness is the highest. So it it gets this like kind of bright spot, and using this bright spot, it can kind of reverse calculate and figure out where that infrared emitter was relative to your eye. And using this, a bunch of like math, it can kind of figure out where on the screen you're looking. Mm -hmm. So there's some kind of math that they have baked into this software, which can in real time figure out where you're looking on the screen based on tracking your pupil and this thing called the corneal reflection. So yeah. right in the beginning of the experiment, we do this calibration where uh, you're shown a bunch of dots on the screen and then you look around and the software sees where you're looking or where the pupil and the corneal reflection are corresponding to each of the dots that it presents on the screen. And using this, it can make a map of how, where to tell you are looking based on the image of your eye. So this calibration is kind of important in the beginning. Um, and then after that calibration, you just do the experiment and it records in real time um, your eye tracking data. And then it just stores it as a file. And later on, I'm just going to get my hands on that file and do all kinds of uh, analysis. Right. Yeah. So talk about the third experiment, which was yeah. kind of so the third, the third experiment is kind of interesting. So, um, so the third experiment is where it's called free viewing. And in free viewing, you basically have screen after screen of images coming up. And you're not given any specific task. The instruction is just watch these screens like you would watch TV. 
you know. Right. So what can we get from something like that? Well, in a free viewing task, the interesting thing is you are not told what your task is, but you kind of make up your task on your own, you know. And depending on the nature of your psychology, what you're going to decide to do and what you're going to decide to look at is going to be different. So in the past, what has been shown is that uh, people with um, depression, let's say, when you have this free viewing task on any of in on each of these screens, I was showing, I think, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 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 nine images, yeah. yep, yep. nine images. And these images come from something called the uh, IAPS or the International Effective Picture System. This is a database of images that was kind of designed by psychologists in I believe maybe in the 1980s or something yeah, like that. Yeah, they're older images. You can tell that they're yeah. older, right? They're kind of grainy. Yeah. 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 Um, so this is a database of images that was kind of curated by psychologists. Um, um, and the way that this image database was designed was that they would be able to elicit a variety of emotions. Um, uh, in the subject who's viewing these images. So there are three measures associated with these images. Um, <laughs> the first one is called valence, which is just um, whether you would feel good when you look at the image or feel bad, like positive or negative, you know? An example of an image with positive valence would be a picture of cute puppies. You know, right. and then there's like negative valence images, and the worst of these kinds would be. I mean, there were some that you looked at are like grisly, like gruesome accidents. You know, right. like yep. pictures of like body parts and things like that. Things that you just don't want to look at. You know, normally. Um, right. So there's the valence aspect. So there are some pictures in this database that are positive valence, negative valence, and neutral. Like yeah, okay, whatever. And then there's arousal. Arousal is basically the level of interestingness. And you could have images that are like not very interesting at all. Like for example, the picture of an empty room with just a chair, you know, not very interesting. And then there would be something that's like very interesting. And usually the interesting images, the very interesting images are either interestingly good or interestingly bad. So the Images with high interest are usually strong positive valence or negative valence. So either strongly positive images or strongly negative images. Um, and the third one is called dominance, which is a little bit hard to explain and not very relevant in this context. But it has to do with uh, when you look at this image, do you feel like you are in control or the image is in control or something? like mm. that? You know, I think that's more effective in like addiction research and things like that. Um, but I'm not working much with the dominance uh, image. So basically, we have this um, we have this database of several hundred images, and the psychologists they took a bunch of um, bunch of people and got these people to look at each of these images and rate them on these three scales. So we already have existing ratings of these um, images in this database. And what I was trying to do in this experiment was in each screen that comes up, I will have nine images. And these nine images, I'm tr I'm, I've tried to select them such that each of those nine images have roughly the same level of interestingness, but they vary in their positive versus negative. And the idea is 
you you I'm tracking your eyes as you're just looking at this screen for some time. And I'm later on, what I'm going to do is I'm going to measure how long you stayed on each of these images. And it has been shown in the past that uh, people with depression or trauma like to spend more time looking at negative images than positive mm. images. And mm -hmm. it kind of correlates to what you have. If you have depression, people will look at sad images for longer. If you have trauma, you will look at violent images for longer, depending on what kind of, you know, if you had violent trauma. Um, at the same time, if you do the same experiment on healthy controls, they will spend less time wanting to look at the negative images and more time looking at the positive images. Yeah. Um, so this is just the free viewing task. The analysis for this experiment is relatively straightforward. You don't have to figure out what the exact eye tracking location is. You just have to figure out which of those images you were looking at and yeah. how long you spent on them. Um, so that's the last experiment. And the reason that I picked each of the nine images in the screen to have the same level of interestingness is so that, you know, you're not spending more time on an image just because it's more interesting. You know, all of them are equally interesting, but the degree to which you spend more time on one image versus another can only be explained due to the positive versus negative. And mm. the interestingness is the same. So, so that's the last of the three experiments. And um, I'm still not sure what the analysis is going to look like. You're the only person that I've collected data on so far. We still haven't had the next cohort of, of people. And I haven't got pre and post on you because you didn't actually go to the retreat. Right, uh, right, right. Yep, that's right. So I just yep. I just got like one, one you know, one data point. Uh, so it kind of remains to be seen. But um, I have already like kind of done a thought experiment in my mind about what I would expect the data to look like. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's always useful. Like, you know, like I said, like we should not have an agenda about what we want the measurements to look like. However, I feel that it's always useful for me to have a mental imagination of ideally what the data would look like if this treatment were to work. Well, yeah, that's... And, and then design the analysis according to that. And then when I do design the analysis, either it's going to look like what I imagine and that's all good. And if it doesn't look like, then that also tells us something. So yeah. I am expecting that if the psychedelic treatment works, we will see that after the experiment, you're spending more time looking at the positive images on the screen and less time looking at the negative images. Right. Yeah. So, well, I mean, that's scientific method. That's, yeah. you have to have a hypothesis, yeah. right? And that, yeah. that's the whole point is like, here's what yeah. we expect. We're yeah. going to do the test, yeah. the experiment, and then we're either going to see those results or something else. Right? Yeah, yeah. 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 You should have an expectation. So, yeah. you know, what's, what was interesting about that thing too mm -hmm. is yeah, some of the images were basically like, porn too oh yeah yeah version of it yeah. and i think it would have been interesting i don't know how you would do it but had i had it like had those images just been up and and no one had told me anything yeah just like here you go mm. and no one said anything about what mm. was going to be shown versus mm. hey you're going to see all these images just mm. see watch it mm. and so i found myself thinking as these things would come up, as I'm looking around, like, oh, shoot. Okay, that's that's grisly image. Like, mm. okay, should, should I look at that? Should I not look yeah. at that? Right? The yeah. porn comes up. It's like, okay, I like kind of looking yeah. at that. Should I look at that? Right? Yeah. So 
it's sort of this analysis in my head as yeah. it was going on of what should I be doing? Right, here? right, right. Yeah, it's absolutely. To wrestle yourself away from. Yeah, actually, even before I ran the experiment for the first time on you, these questions came up in my mind. I was like, you know, in an ideal case, if I just imagine a person in all their privacy, looking at a right. screen like this, right. that would be pure unadulterated data. Right. But they're not being able to get that because this person comes into an experimental lab and there are people around them and they know that they are in an experiment and they have some understanding of what's going on. And then there's another person in the fucking room <laughs> as you're, right. and then there's this porn that comes out, you're feeling self-conscious. <laughs> so, so you could have like thinking that is going on on top of that, that is going to bias your decision on what you're going to look at. And yeah. I, I thought in my head, I'm like, how am I going to reduce that? One of them, <laughs> I was like, I better not be sitting behind them as they're looking at these images. That's at least one thing that I can do. So that's why I was sitting in front of you. And, yeah. um, but that's still not, you know, it still kind of contaminates the data because, you know, one of the yeah, things I did because you kept looking at me. Right. <laughs> I, I said that too. So occasionally I would, I would notice my eyes would dart off and look at you yeah. off the screen. And so, yeah, it's tricky because even in a darkened room with the screen, there's still other things around it that you can yeah, see and that yeah. can uh, you know, attract your vision. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. I would say these are all challenges. And, and, uh, and like I said, as I have gone from like theoretical physics to doing more and more of these like real life experiments, I've realized how many more challenges there are in this yeah. field in even collecting you know, good quality data. There are all of these challenges that come up. Um, but even through these challenges in the past, th they have done these experiments. And despite all of these kind of contamination effects and all kinds of noise effects, they have still ended up being able to make measurements that are what are, we call statistically significant. So the hope for me is that at least I would be able to reach that level of statistical significance. Right. Well, at you least know. I think that's that factor is controlled for in the sense that everyone's still getting the same experiment, right? Yeah, so yeah. everyone, everyone there, yeah, probably has that same level of right, right, self-conscious, yeah, self-consciousness. You, know, you, you would have the same level of self-consciousness as you came in to do the experiment before your treatment and after. Yes, so if there was some effect due to that, it would kind of cancel out, right? Uh, right. You know, from both, but you know, it doesn't always work that way. Um, for example, the first time you're doing an experiment, you might be feeling a certain way, but when you come back to do the experiment again, the second time you could be feeling a different way because you've already done this experiment before. And there's yeah. like a little bit of a memory effect, you know, um, you saw a certain image and it was like, man, that's gruesome. And you remember that. So the next time you see that image, you're not coming at it with like a clean slate like you did the first time. And you might either decide to look at it for longer because the first time you found it kind of interesting or you're like, oh my God, that's that image again. I don't want to look at it at all. Yeah. So there's a kind of memory effect and there are all these challenges. And, you know, I mean, science is challenging. And part of it is that I kind of enjoy thinking about all these challenges and like, you know, how, how can you, you know, make things better? These are all like real questions to think about and no, no easy solution to them. Yeah. Well, even all those tests that I did, yeah. they're, as far as I know, they were all the same tests the second time around. So even having not done any mm. treatment in between them, yeah. I would assume that on most of them, I would still be better because 
I'd done the test before. It's the first time I was like, well, I don't know exactly what this is. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Whereas the second time around, especially some of the cognitive stuff, it was like, well, I remember that from the first time. Yeah. Uh, I will say that there was one thing that I know I specifically I did worse on, but I again I attribute that to like I was just so tired that I <laughs> was oh, like yeah. there's a cognitive decline here because sure. I was I'm just exhausted. Um, so I, I gotta wrap this up here in a, in mm-hmm. a few, but um, the other thing I just wanted to ask was because if you're interested in psychedelics and you, you talked at the beginning here about this the the vision right and like sort yeah. of that the robot taking imagery in that yeah. And the first time I did any type of psychedelic treatment, it was ketamine. And I did that in a mm. clinical setting. So it was like in a, yeah. it was in the U.S., it's legal. I was in a doctor's office, basically, with an eye shade and a therapist. And that was the only time because of the, the dose I ended up doing where I experienced this kind of ego dissolution where yeah. my the vantage point of consciousness disappeared. Now, yeah. And even though eye shades were down, I could still see things, yeah. right? But that idea of it emanating from somewhere yeah. went, went away. Yeah. And I just wonder, sort of getting to that point of, I spent all the time, from mm. what I remember, in that state, mm. thinking about that and trying to reconcile it of yeah. what, what is awareness when there is no vantage point? Yeah. Like how, because you, I, I felt it. Yeah. But it made no sense to me. Yeah. And I just wonder about that with vision, right? It's like, yeah. Because of our senses, yeah. Our vision, the hearing, all of that. And because most of that is located on our head, yeah. We feel yeah. like we're in our head. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. But we feel like we're behind our eyes. Yes. We, we feel like we're behind our eyes. Right. Yeah. And, and that's, I think, mainly because of the sensory information. Like, yep. even if our brains, even if your brain was located in your stomach, yeah, you would still feel like you're in your head. Yeah, because I think because your yeah. ears are up there. Yeah. So the question becomes, like, if you lose all that, I, I guess what I'm getting to here is, yeah, how does that work, especially in light of if you have a psychedelic experience where yeah. that kind of goes away? Yeah, what's changing there that's making that possible right and then what does that say about the sort of seat of consciousness i mean it's i mean that's a really yeah deep yeah. question i realize but yeah you know yeah so i think that's really interesting so this is not necessarily in a psychedelic context but i would say that uh like on a personal note from a very young age i feel like i was really mystified by the question of who am i Mm. What is the self? And at some point, I encountered this uh, idea. You might call it a philosophy, although it's not exactly a philosophy. It's like a kind of school of mostly Eastern spiritual thought, although it has appeared in uh, with slight variations across the entire world, even like in Western spiritual traditions. And it's called non-duality. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Mm-hmm. heard of it yeah yeah yep. so the idea of non-duality is that yes as humans we always implicitly carry around a sense of self like there is um, something that is in my body that's me and it's behind my eyes um, and it's looking at the world and it's kind of like a homunculus it's like something that is kind of inside my brain and like running my body 
and making decisions, has responsibility for the consequences of those decisions, has free will and choice, and navigating itself through life using these decisions and taking responsibility in order to get to where I need to get, you know? And there is a certain certain place that I need to get that I haven't reached yet, and this is not it, I need to get there. So there's a constant like seeking energy and the seeking energy is like, oh, this is me and I need to get somewhere. Um, and the idea of non-duality is that that's an illusion. It, you know, I mean, it's it's kind of complex to kind of talk about like, okay, who is this illusion happening to if there is nobody, right, right. you know? But the yeah. thing is that question only comes from a perspective that is totally embedded in thinking that there has to be someone that it happens to. You know? mm -hmm. So the thing that does not make sense is that if you're completely embedded in that perspective that it, there is a me and everything's happening to me, then it becomes completely confused if for some time the me disappeared, you know? Right. And then when the me comes back, it's like, that does not make sense to me, you know? Yeah. Um, so, so it's like kind of tricky to talk about, but this is, you know, I mean, there there has been a lot of, you know, thinking about this and spiritual practices surrounding the self completely aside from psychedelics. And um, there are uh, traditions of meditation where, you know, completely without any psychedelics, you can go into like deep meditation states where the same thing happens, the self disappears. Um, right. And psychedelics in some ways are just a way to like a kind of shortcut to get to that point. And while that state can freak out some people, because the ego is something that is constantly on a mission to establish and perpetuate itself. Mm -hmm. So depending on how strong your ego is, under a psychedelic um, state of consciousness, if the ego starts to dissolve or the vantage point starts to dissolve, it can be like a nightmare. You could freak out. And most often what the ego says is, I'm dying. What have you done? You're dying, you know, because it really literally is like the ego is dying at that moment. Yeah. Um, yeah. But on the other hand, it's kind of like a state that is like really prized in a lot of spiritual paths and practices where a lot of the meditation that people are doing is geared towards trying to kind of reach that state where the self dissolves yeah. um, and psychedelics can be like a shortcut to it but if you're not really prepared or not really willing to have that kind of no self experience it can be the opposite thing it can be like one of the worst things ever yeah um, so i personally grew up with like a gripping fear of death and uh, you know a fear of death is kind of um I would say sort of synonymous with like being really strongly identified with the ego. Yep. So a couple of times when I had that ego dissolution experience, it was not fun. But then over time, I feel like my relationship with death and ego dissolution completely changed, like completely changed to where it became more of like a state that I would like to be in, you know, where the ego kind of dissolves. And, and so I've had several different no self experiences and yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know what more to say about it, but I would say that over time, these experiences have made me much, much less afraid of my own death. And the less afraid I become of my own death, 
the more alive I become to mm. life, you know? So it's yeah. like, uh, it's kind of like, uh, I mean, not to get too poetic here, but I feel like if we go around with this gripping fear of death, it's like I have this thing called life and I have to protect it at all costs. Yeah. You know, but where did that life come from? Like, was it ever ours to begin with? So I feel like without a fear of death, it's kind of like living life with a constant, maybe not necessarily a conscious awareness, but a sort of subconscious acknowledgement that, I mean, this is just life and it's happening and I don't need to grip onto any of this for it to be happening it's just kind of happening on its own right. and uh yeah so i feel like a lot of kind of release and relaxation can come from that and a lot of mental energy which in the past was being channeled towards a constant mission of i have to protect myself i have to sustain myself i have to constantly protect myself from all of these threats that i perceive is no longer being sucked up by those mechanisms and that energy then flows to like more creative stuff you know like if your existential fears kind of reduce then that makes space for a lot of other like more vibrant things like yeah i feel like i can kind of go out in the into the world with a lowered sense of self-consciousness and just like be more creative and in a way it kind of lets me be um much more like vibrant and engaged with life uh, in a way that I'm like not really afraid of life anymore either, you know. Yeah. So, uh, so I don't know. I mean, you 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 asked a question about something and went off on like a whole. No, no, no. I, I thought that was great. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's interesting. My, I grew up with that same sort of gripping fear of death. Like, yeah. I, I can remember I used to have these sort of panic moments where I would fixate on the fact that I was going to die at some point. Oh yeah, point. me too. And I would freak out. Like I would yeah. literally like kick and and punch and stuff like that as a kid. Yeah. yeah. And um, a lot of times it would happen when I was sort of falling asleep or I was lying mm. in bed and just sort of left to ruminate on my own. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I had that same thing. I think everything you said is so accurate and it's so, uh, or it's so applicable to yeah. people that like, when you find yourself in a state of, like I did, of constant anxiety, yeah. to your point, you can't, that that feeling of anxiety is, is there when you are really threatened with death. Yeah. Right? There's yeah. a real threat to yeah. keep you alive. Yeah. But it shouldn't be there the rest of the time. Oh, yeah. yeah. Otherwise, you can't live. <laughs> and I think yeah. that that's so, so important. And and again, I, I think what I found so interesting about that experience, I've only experienced it once, that real ego dissolution, but... Yeah. I still wasn't able to make sense of it. It was, yeah. I just couldn't, I kept, from what I remember, I kept asking the same question over and over in my head, which is again, what is awareness Yeah. without a vantage point, without yeah. a place that it's emanating yeah. from? Like, how are yeah. you, how is something aware yeah. when there's no location of the awareness? That yeah. I was like the weirdest yeah. Thing. And I just yeah. spent however long that was. And it seemed like it was a really long time. Yeah. But it probably wasn't. It was probably 30 minutes or something. Yeah. Uh, I spent that entire time just sort of like fixated on that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 I mean, but it, I'll, t I'll tell you this, you know, the reason that I think it doesn't make sense to think of awareness without a vantage point is because pretty much all our 
life that we at least remember once we once we grew old enough to have like verbal memories we have had a vantage point right right so that's why it doesn't make sense because like 99.9% of our waking memory we have had a vantage point so it doesn't make sense to think of awareness without a vantage point the question of the self keeps coming again and again like it doesn't make sense to me you know what is the me that it has to make sense however just in an alternate reality if you imagine that 99.9% of the waking life you had spent in awareness without a vantage point right. and then you took some kind of drug in a doctor's office where for 30 minutes you had a vantage point it would not make sense that would right. not make sense right. so there's yeah. there's no logical reason that it should not make sense other than the fact that logic is made up a lot of the times by the self that's constantly there so yeah. the thing that doesn't make sense is to the self that has you know is just kind of online all the time and trying to make sense of the world so yeah. the thing is the no self state doesn't need to make sense to the self yeah in order to be valid um and there are people who are on this like different kinds of spiritual paths and uh, i would say that some of these non duality teachers they claim that they are constantly in that state of no self that there is no self wow. and in the beginning i found that you know that's that's a little bit of a tall claim but now i kind of do believe that it is possible for some human beings to like walk around without a Maybe. sense of self and they're like completely fine with it and um and you can if you want connect this to some neuroscience and there have been studies that show that the sense of self that is constantly projecting itself on the world has to do with the activity of what is called the default mode network and yep. also called the resting state network which is a cluster of locations around the brain that are constantly engaging <clears throat> sort of ruminating and thinking about the past and the future and positing itself in the context of the world and in some altered states such as in deep states of meditation or in psychedelic states the default mode network is not that active anymore so you could just say that the sense of self is kind of created by the activity of this default right. mode network right, right. Yep. and when you reduce the activity of the default mode network you still can go around per perfectly functional as a human being but without a vantage point right and it doesn't yeah. seem to impede any of your behavior yeah and uh the other thing what you yeah. said made me think of is i i'm sort of the same way you are i think which is i feel like i have a very i have a very strong sense of ego yeah right? like in terms of sense of self and the way i figured that out was through psychedelics where mm -hmm. it takes a lot to knock me off of it yeah whereas yeah i you know i was in this ceremony with two dozen people yeah we all took the same amount of mushrooms of psilocybin and everyone else was having an experience it did nothing to me yeah like i just sat there and I, yeah. I had to take more like i had to take a ton to to get the effect and i yeah. think it's well i think what's interesting about that too is even what we're talking about that idea of sense of self or ego versus no sense of self or no yeah. location yeah. is potentially not a binary thing yeah where it's not a yes no it yeah. is a spectrum where some people 
right? They're like way over to the left yep. side of it, whereas other people are somewhere in the middle or, yeah, yeah. and they're, and because of that, maybe, you know, to some extent, I wonder if that makes you able to, if your, your default mode network is not so rooted in your own ego. Yeah. You know, what does that do exactly? Is that, are those people that are more empathetic with others? Like, I was just about to say, I was just emotions? about to say that, you know, it, it is probably correlated with things like empathy. Yeah, like people yeah. with very strong sense of ego, or like for example, if you take like people who have narcissistic personality disorder and things like that, people with very strong main character personality. Yes, you know, they it's like for people like that, it's nearly impossible for them to imagine any other perspective than your own. Right. Yes. I mean, even regular people who have a sense of self they have some ability to imagine other perspectives. But yep. if you're like really on that spectrum where your ego is so strong, it is quite difficult for you to even imagine another person's perspective. Well, that's called theory of mind, right? That, yeah. that concept yeah. is called theory of mind. And you don't, yeah. you're actually not able to do that. I think until you're about like three or four years old or something, that's why like kids are always screaming about what they're, yeah. they don't have a concept that there's other people that yeah. have their own wants and desires as well. Yeah. And it's yeah. not until I think they're like four years old or something where they finally get that. And it's like, yeah. oh, maybe what <laughs> I want isn't the concern yeah. of everybody else on the planet at any given moment, right? Yeah. 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 By the way, the other thing that I wanted to say is that I was reading your blog articles since mm. yesterday really good writing i um oh I, thank you you know it's it's pretty impactful and i well first of all really good writing uh, and the other thing is i appreciate how in some of those articles you were you know kind of open and vulnerable about the kinds of things that you're going through i feel yeah. like it's nothing quite like being honest and open and vulnerable about your own experiences in order to open up a conversation about mental health yeah, I, thank you. I appreciate all of that. Um, yeah. And that I know we spent most of the time actually talking, it, it was mainly me interviewing you. I know we we're talking about me a little bit there in the beginning, but um, yeah, yeah I, I feel like that's one of my, what I've been trying to do is yeah. just be sort of open and vulnerable. I feel like there's so many, there's a lot of people out there that impart wisdom or try mm -hmm. to impart wisdom on others. Yeah. And a lot of times it comes from sort of one of two places like the the persona is similar it's either people that basically say something to the effect of i'm awesome and i've always had it all figured out and i'm gonna i'm gonna tell you how how to figure it all out as well and yeah. then you'll be awesome like me <laughs> or it's the second bucket which is i wasn't awesome i was all screwed yeah. up but then i figured it all out and yeah. now i'm awesome and i've got it all figured it out and i'll tell you how to be awesome too yeah. and i feel like okay some of that's probably true in both cases but the reality is even those people, their work's in progress and yeah. they're, they're yeah, still yeah. working on it and they still have to work on it and they're not perfect mm -hmm. and they don't have it figured all figured out. And so I've always just tried to be someone who's like, all right, here's what I've learned, especially yeah. my own sort of mental health journey, but I'm also still a work in progress. And yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm just like any of you in that regard mm -hmm. and I'm no better. Yeah. Um, I've just, I just hope that, some of the mistakes I've made and some of the rabbit holes I've gone down, I can sort of tell you what I learned in that process mm -hmm. so that you don't have to 
like you can flatten the curve, right? Like yeah. let's flatten the, the learning curve here um, and get there quicker, hopefully, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Like I've just tried to be a guinea pig of self-experimentation <clears throat> so that others can potentially not have to perform so <laughs> take yeah. so long to get there, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, but so that's my, that's kind yeah. of been Cool. Yeah. I feel very glad that you didn't remain just a subject uh, in my experiment, the, but that we ended up connecting and had this. Yeah, well, hey, look, you know? look, this all. Thankfully, because I was a little bit grumpy, apparently that morning. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, and and again, please apologize to those folks. Yeah, no, no, that's those. all right. <laughs> I was short with them. Um, uh, I, I can totally envision that, though. Like again, my my wife will have those days where where I'm, yeah. and it's still some of this sort of chronic illness stuff creeps up because of that, right? And she'll be like, yeah. "Are you okay? like, are you just having a bad day?" And I'm like, "Yeah, yeah." Stuff. Anyway, but look, because of that, and we went to lunch together, I thought it was yeah. like we had a really cool conversation and, yeah. and I thought you were so, so interesting in what you were yeah. doing. It was like, oh, wow, that's a really cool experiment. So, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, um, you know, what I really value as I'm kind of getting into this field is not just the way that I'm like scientifically learning from the data points and the beeps and boops, but these kinds of conversations as well. Like, I feel like I yeah. learned like a whole lot more especially when I come into the realm of psychology, a lot of it is about people's real lived experiences. And you cannot capture all of it using some eye tracking on a screen, you know? Of course, I mean, you yeah. can go ahead and just do that, but then your science is not going to be as rich or informed as yeah. if it comes from this, you know, kind of like real life conversation. So, I mean, I, I really value these kinds of learning as well. Yeah, and that's yeah. That, that's been my point with sort of mental health uh, yeah. data, so to speak, right? I, yeah. I think that sort of anecdotal, quote unquote, anecdotal stuff often gets a bad rap. Yeah. And I always go back to, well, how else do you measure it exactly? You're talking yeah. about somebody's subjective experience. It's not like a disease where, or a fever, let's say, yeah. right? This person's sick, they have a fever. Yeah. They have yeah. 103 fever. We can measure that. Okay. We've given them some medicine. We measured again, back to yeah. normal. Right? Okay. Yeah. Very quantitative. Got it. Right. Um, it's not like that. It's yeah. like, how do you measure depression exactly? How do you right. measure anxiety exactly? It's right. just a feeling. It's just the yeah. way people self-report on any yeah. on any given day. And so it has to be qualitative. Yeah, it, absolutely. It has to be anecdotal at some yeah. level. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, although that, all that being said, I think, like you said, I thought the point you made of like, well, if we can correlate it to something yeah, and that, and that supports the subjective experience. Yeah. Okay, cool. Now we have some data that will help, especially if we're talking about regulatory things and we're, we're talking yeah. about legal restrictions yeah. being removed. Okay, great. Like that yeah, makes a absolutely. ton of sense to do. Yeah. That. Yeah. yeah. yeah sure. But I'll, I'll end with one thing on this point is that I feel like particularly Western, Western medicine, the Western medical industry a lot of the times what it does That's is right what we're talking it. about. Yeah, the Western medical industry, the way that it deals with things is that a person presents themselves with some kind of an issue and you're basically hurrying to put them in some kind of a category where it's like you yes. are this combination of things and I have these things which are called pills which will annihilate those things. Okay, now go home, you know? Yep. And I yeah. feel like that's such a dead and alienating way 
of dealing with humans who have had such complex experiences and the right medicine there is not to treat this person as an object and give them an object in response but what is really calling out for attention is this is my story is there going to be some listening and sometimes what it really is looking for is a, is a level of listening in the human interpersonal realm that cannot be substituted by a pill that you take out of the box right you know and, yeah. and, and I that, feel, yeah. yeah, and I feel like there's there has to be some reckoning of that, you know, and you, you can't just you can't just uh, you can't just simplify the problem by like, OK, a person walks in through the door, put them in this box and then you give them the pill. I yes. mean, some symptoms are going to be taken care of in the short term, but it's going to keep proliferating other problems and sprouting other kinds of branches because some of that human element was not listened to. Yeah. Right. And and that goes back to the original point I made about my yeah. own situation, which was this was the big <clears throat> one of the big realizations for me, <clears throat> which took me a long time to figure out. And that yeah. is it's exactly that we're conditioned to be like, OK, there's something wrong with me. I need mm -hmm. a diagnosis yeah. and then I need a treatment yeah. against that diagnosis. Yeah. And it wasn't the way to go about it at all. Yeah. It was like there's no one thing wrong with me there's yeah. ways that i'm sort of like my behavior is maladapted mm -hmm. and but trying to come up with some sort of disease uh yeah. name label yeah. that i've got to give this thing that therefore yeah. has this one specific treatment is just the wrong approach it's a it's an yeah. incorrect assumption and yeah. i had to just go about it as like okay i've got a whole bunch of sort of patterns and ways that i'm operating that have maladapted and they're not optimized. Yeah. And I need to work on myself yeah. optimizing those things mm -hmm. and not worry about some fucking yeah. name and yeah. not worry about so and not and the pharmaceutical thing isn't part. Now, that's not to say that a certain drug might not be part of the equation. It might be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a, and a treatment might be part of the equation, but it's mm -hmm. just this like sole source, sole solution yeah. mentality. Yeah. It's just not that you know, sort of allopathic mentality. Yeah, is not yeah, yeah. 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 You know? So Absolutely. anyway, Neil, yeah. great talking to you, man. This yeah, was fun. Absolutely. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. Um, and uh, we'll have to do it again sometime. Hopefully, I'll, I don't know if I'll ever make it back to Austin, but but yeah. if I do, I'll I'll look you up. Thanks, All man. Right. All right, take care. See ya. Yeah.